Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, she's one of our favorites to talk to because we can go deep and far afield. As my father would say, teaching classes on various topics. My mom would look at him and go, he's going to chase a rabbit. That's what that means. Amanda Griffiths, how are you, ma'am? Great to have you back on the program. I'm doing wonderfully, and it's great to be back. How are you doing, Andrew? Good, good, good. I We were trying to prep this show, and then you just kept hitting me with stuff I want to talk about. Let's start here, though. Um, you wrote a piece about labor. It's in town hall. We're going to link to it. Talks talks about Starbucks, but you could apply this to a lot of the service sector industry. This goes to just a core principle kind of thing and how you view the world, because I think how people view this is how they come at it. And then you can't really get them off it. I'm not against unions in theory. I'm not. Look, I'm from West Virginia. If anybody needed a union, it was the coal miners. My God, I'm not against unions. I'm not against people that want to be in a union. I'm not against people that don't want to be in a union. I think you should have both options. I'm, I would not cross the picket line personally. I'd just rather not be in a union. That's just me. I have some conflicting views on this. I'll be honest about it. Where I have concerns and your piece starts tiptoeing on this territory and it gets right up to the edge on it because this is going to start happening. I get concerned when the unions are so busy fighting with the government and the unions are so busy fighting with corporations, the workers get left out of the equation. I see too much of that. I see we saw with the railroad strike union and government kind of got together and the worker kind of got screwed here. We see unions and people that honestly want a union to try to make their lives better. But then it becomes union versus corporation. And then the worker kind of gets left out. That's where I see a bit of a problem with some of this service service sector stuff, whether it's a Starbucks or anything else is I'm fine if they want to try to do a union, but unions are not all created equal. There's good ones. There's bad ones like everything else. And it's all in. Is their priority their workers or is the priority fighting the bigs and prov- keeping the union going? Because that's a that's a big distinction we need to start with before we get to the next part. Right. You encapsulated it really well, Andrew. That is the problem. And this is why I try to differentiate between big labor and mega unions. We're talking about, uh, in this case, something like Workers United, Uh, Starbucks. A lot of Starbucks stores are affiliated with Workers United. Uh, Workers United serves as the union representative. The issue with this is that when you have these mega unions, they represent such a, a, a sometimes random and diverse swath of industries. And it's so centralized. There's no way 
you can represent the interests of the individual worker. It's just like with governments and corporations, quite frankly. The bigger and bigger and more centralized a, an institution becomes, the more distant it becomes from individual workers, individual constituents, whatever we're talking about, the more centralized, the more of a conglomerate something becomes, the more difficult it is to represent those discrete needs. That's what we're seeing with something like Workers United, with a lot of teachers union politics, with something like, uh, in, in various cases, United Auto Workers, which can represent and, and do bargaining for, for groups very far afield. It's, <laughs> You, you just said at the start of our show, groups very far afield of, of auto workers. And it gets really hard to speak to the needs of someone like you or me. Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. When you get into things like the National Labor Relations Board on top of it, bureaucratic control usually doesn't mean good things for the little guy especially uniform bureaucratic control. And again, I'm not anti-union, but there's, to me, a lot. And when I look through history, there's kind of two different versions of unions. There's the ground up, the workers are getting together because they need the representation. And not that you can't have outside help doing it. And you got to have outside help to get that done. Then there's what's happening lately in the last 30, 40 years. You mentioned things like the auto workers union. I can look at the United Mine Workers from back where I'm from. You can pick up any Teamsters. We just saw what happened with Yellow Freight. They got a great contract with UPS, but 30,000-some people, 22,000 of them union at Yellow, they're all out of a job because the union and the company couldn't coexist. The top-down model is a problem because unions have never been smaller in membership their memberships shrinking there's not enough chairs left at that table they're starving for money and funds and they need union dues and members to perpetuate themselves so they start going and looking for places where they can get to and again that's not always a bad thing but those are two different models to how a union and how labor and it affects the relationship between those workers and the union and the company i i'm remembering when when um one of the german automakers first went into the american south and then they, they were like, well, of course, we're going to have a union because they're used to European style labor unions. And they were shocked at how adversarial it was. They weren't used to it because it's a different beast here. Do we need to have a conversation that those relationships between a union, between a company, between the union, the company and the government, those need to be more productive, less adversarial, less parasitic, less political. Is there any way to do that or at least talk about it? Or are we just too far down the road? There are definite policy changes that need to happen. And this is what this piece looks at. And I apologize for anyone who hates dad jokes. <laughs> I grew up with a lot of dad jokes. And so there are a lot of coffee puns in this article. It's titled, Biden's NLRB wants to roast Starbucks over labor allegations, but it's workers who are getting burned. That encapsulates it. Uh, that's, that sort of says it, where the relationship, the union needs to represent the worker, or, or in cases with teachers' unions, the union needs to represent the interests of the student. So what's happening instead, with the NLRB in particular, is there have been a series of changes where to get in the weeds a little bit, 
if a union has been authorized to act as a bargaining representative for over a year, as is the case in the Starbucks article with Workers United, for over a year without reaching a first contract, there's this stop gap, there's this exit ramp that workers can take and they can file a decertification petition. They can say, we actually don't want this union to represent us anymore. We don't have a contract yet. We're petitioning to get this union decertified as our representative. That kickstarts a democratic process, bulwark of workplace democracy right here. These are just decertification elections. The workers vote. They put it to a vote amongst themselves once the petition is approved. And then they take a vote. Do we want this union? Do we not? Either the union stays or the union goes. Here's the problem. Unions can file what are called blocking charges against any decertification petition. Theoretically, yes, they have to have cause, but there's very little oversight as to what that cause is. That kicks the decision to the National Labor Relations Board or regional affiliates. And the regional affiliates, the bureaucrats, make the call. Do these workers get to get a choice? And in Starbucks' case, the decertification petitions have been struck down by bureaucrats. So that flies in the face of what unions are supposed to stand for, which is worker choice. Maybe the Starbucks workers just want another alternative for a union. Maybe some of them want to represent themselves. Maybe some of them don't like the way that Workers United is going about doing things. There are so many reasons why you would file this decertification petition. Ostensibly, Starbucks Corporation has been misbehaving on a national level and bargaining in bad faith. But that doesn't really give you justification to punish the individual workers. Because if Starbucks is wrong for denying choice to workers, if Starbucks is wrong for engaging in, uh, you know, in engaging in in unfair labor practices and denying worker agency, what makes it okay for the NLRB to do the same thing? What makes it okay for unions to ask the NLRB to help them do the same thing? That's where we get to this problem. It, this, this bureaucratic capture of, of the NLRB by big unions and big labor really needs to change the union business model is dying. We see that in the dwindling men membership. The reason it's dying is because unions will not get on board and adjust the way that they approach the power and the value of the individual worker. They're rehashing this old stale narrative that very fortunately is not true anymore. Workers have power. Workers have value. You are valuable because of who you are and what you can bring to a job. You as an individual. Unions do not like that because that flies in the face of what their business model is. They've effectively become what the corporations that they rightly railed against in the past used to be. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, Amanda Griffiths joining us. Let's switch gears for just a second because I was just enthralled with what you were telling me. As you teach and glide amongst the groves of academe, you've been busy molding young minds. But I love how you explain this, but you got to teach a class this summer. It goes a little bit to what we're talking about labor, the new generation, how people view their own self-worth and that sort of thing. Look, if you're going to talk politics and culture, when you first go to college or first go into the workforce, those are life-changing things that greatly affect how you view culture and politics. And you got to teach a class where you got some folks with some very unique perspectives on both, especially here in America. And I want you to share that because I found it fascinating and I think it's a really interesting perspective to hear about. <laughs> you call it you call it molding young minds. Others call it corrupting the youth when it's me. Um so I was gushing off air and uh, I was saying that I just finished teaching a summer course, a TAing a summer course. So I led the discussion segments, which I run sort of like seminars, uh, supplement the lectures. And it was for uh, new admits um, and first generation undergrads who were getting a head start on their freshman experience. This was... Uh, this was an absolute delight, and the course was on American politics and government. So I was saying off air, and I'll repeat this, it sounds very trite. It sounds like I'm running for office. It sounds like I'm doing some promotional video, but I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The course content was fantastic, and it was very educational, great refresher for me. But if you want to learn about what it means to be an American you look at those students. Uh, you don't look at, I mean, you, yeah, you of course look at the course content, but those students and their perspectives, the hunger that they brought to learning this subject, a lot of them came from immigrant families, their first gen, if they knew nothing about it, they had this amazing curiosity. They wanted to learn. I had students, say in weekly discussions, you know, we were reading these two pieces and one represented one side and one represented another. And I realized, I realized that I was being very harsh on one of the pieces because of my own biases. And I realized that when I read something that is written by someone of X political persuasion, I need to be mindful of that and check my own bias. And I thought, that is something that 50-year-olds don't get. So it was, it, it was something that was so wonderful. Students were discovering for themselves why this is meaningful to them. 
And that's why I do anything that I do is, is when I get to see people find why they are passionate about something, why they are curious about something and dive into it in a way that is really unique for them and productive for everyone else when they get to watch it and they get to learn from it. That's, that for me is what the joy of teaching is. And I say teaching in a very holistic sense. I, I consider journalism a type of teaching as well. Yeah, I love that story because I think that's kind of a refreshing point of view that most people don't get. And they don't get to talk to a fresh set of eyes on this American thing we've all been doing and kind of inculcated in. And they don't get that fresh perspective from somebody that's new to it. And it's like looking at somebody that's seen color for the first time. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And we're like, this is just life. And there's that disconnect. So I love talking about that story. I got to ask you about this because I wanted to. When we've had you on before, we did a whole episode. I'm going to link to it in case you missed it in the previous iterations of this program. We did a whole episode on the American epic and do we have one? And what we're talking about is like, you know, Homer and the Iliad, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, Beowulf, what's American's epic? And we got some comments recently, which is amazing because somebody's cool. still watching this like a year later. People were still, there's two events in American history that really stood out. Um, the revolution you could kind of bring up, but that's us and England together. The American Civil War always comes to the top of the heap on that. And then the other one is people kept in the comments and then on the YouTube channel, commenters kept bringing up World War II over and over again. Okay. Now, now it doesn't fit because it's not American, It's fit, but if we're going to beat the Greek the Greek epic metaphor to its last dying breath and then hit it again just to make sure the Trojan war was everybody involved in this one thing at one time. And that's why so much of the, the epicness of it was it involved all those mythic characters. It involved everybody all at once. World war two is just one of those really unique things in all of human history. Really, really did seem to involve everybody. And you had such clean cut, good guys, bad guys, over and over again, three different people on the commenters kept bringing up World War II. It's worth discussing, but if you look at post-World War II America and you're an academic, a lot of American academic pursuits is post-World War II America, and you can argue how long that period goes. Boy, that's a whole lot of our mythology. It's a lot of our politics. It's a lot of our culture from the baby boomers to everything else. I don't know where you cut it off. A lot of people would say somewhere around 9-11 probably, and you're in a different age. That post-World War II is really, really an important slice of American history when you talk about the consciousness and the American epic and what we as Americans think of ourselves, isn't it? Yes, and I think you are looking at it from the perspective of what informs the American consciousness and, and the American sense of identity. I don't see a specific story or narrative And, you know, in fact, in things like the Iliad, there weren't as clean cut a set of good guys and bad guys. Um, But yeah, I think you look at World War II leading into, and, you know, then there's also the Cold War. Um, There's the bomb. There's all of this. Things change dramatically in terms of America's sense of national identity and sense of individual identity uh, post-World War II. I don't know if I would consider that an epic 
just because there isn't one specific narrative that we are talking about. It certainly is a huge, huge influence on what it means to be, someone's sense of what it means to be America. I don't think you can really explain the factors that lead into America's current national sense of identity without talking about World War II and the Cold War. is joining us. The one that we came back to, you and I both came to this conclusion, and several of the commenters brought it up, is, of course, the American Civil War. Not that Civil War in and of itself is unique, but the American one was on a lot of levels. If you had to write a Greek epic or, a, or whatever about it, that's probably the closest you could get. You could probably take a character like Lincoln that has that tragic arc, you know, won the war and died immediately, that kind of thing. You have the freeing of the slaves and the slavery issue. You have the North and the South. You have the combat. You have so many colorful characters. That, look, there's probably more generals from the Civil War that are household names than in all of the rest of American history combined. Like, we just fascinate over this over and over again. There's so much to it. It was interesting. One of the commenters brought up, and, it, and I, I made the same joke myself. It's like, you know, Hey, if Ken Burns does 11 and a half hours of it with David McCullough narrating it, it's automatically epic, period. That's epic. You don't get any more epic in that. Yeah. But that's part of an epic, though. It's not just the story. It's how it got told. You know, Homer survived where a lot of, you know, he wasn't the only guy writing. Like, there was a lot of that stuff written. That's the one that survived. That's think true. of the Civil War. We also got to talk about the mediums of it. It's like, boy, the Civil War story just it just grabs parts of us and it's been retold in a manner where we're never going to get rid of it. And that's part of what brought it forward as an epic too. Cause you know, Homer wasn't the only writer in Greece, but boy, he survived everybody else. Well, and he wasn't a writer. I mean, you're, you're reminding me of the fact that uh, the, the, that the Homeric epics were initially not written down. So I'm, I'm here and I'm being a little bit, uh, a bit of a stickler and saying, well, but we're not talking about a specific narrative and it's true. We're not. Uh, and I think this is my my little nitpick with with your point on the Civil War last time, because I had said something like Mark Twain or Huckleberry, you know, it, uh, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, that kind of thing. Um, and, and you had brought up the Civil War and I said, but that's not one particular piece of content. And you leave it to the academic to 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 you know throw that wet blanket on there. And yeah, you're bringing up a good point that this was also the way that the Homeric epics went initially. So if we're looking at epic fodder, you can certainly look at something like the Civil War. I mean, I'd go back to the found, I'd go back to the stories of the founding. I'd, I'd go back to, because I, that's got diversity of opinion. That's got who are the, well, you you get very few people thinking that the, uh, the that King George was the good guy, but were these founding fathers flawed? Absolutely. Um, 
yeah, you're bringing up a good point that Homer was not really writing it down. Yeah, we have a couple of royalists that join our show from time to time that would argue that point on you, but we'll 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 leave George. By the way, George the Third is actually a fascinating historical character. He's gotten a little bit of run with the Bridgerton stuff and the spinoffs, but he's actually a really fascinating character to read up on, despite the fact that we whooped him twice. Do you know, I just learned this. This is a really fun cocktail party fact. Thank you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for teaching me this. Not directly. Uh, the planet Uranus or Uranus was initially named George after King George. I'm not making this up. <laughs> You would have Mars, George, Neptune. You would, uh, yeah, it was it was named after because um, it was discovered by someone whose patron was King George, and so he wanted to name it George, and that is why the moons of Uranus, Uranus, um, as sort of a as the comedian Chuck Nice on Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast put as a constellation prize, the moons of of that planet of Uranus are named after Shakespearean characters because they're like, we can't name the planet George, we're sorry, we just can't do it, but we can name the moons after English things, question mark. So that's your little bit of trivia for the day. And there's another good example of it is like, if you really want to get a stickler for source material, you're going to run into a problem with Shakespeare in a big yeah. old hurry. Ooh, so yeah. Are you going to, are you going to throw all that out too? Or are we just going to accept it for the greatness it is? Shakespeare so, was Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? I, I am almost. I, nah, that's, I'll that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother. Give Willie his flowers as the kid would say. He's a good guy. I love talking this big picture stuff. I've already talked to you a little bit. We're going to do a couple of deep dive things like our Machiavelli one. We're going to link to those if you missed them the first time. We had so much fun with that. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, find you, and what you got going on until we get you back on the show. Sure, yeah. I'm still a Young Voices contributor, so you can find all my work at Young Voices. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff, speaking of Homeric epics. And I'm also a newly minted Young Voices Social Mobility Fellow. That is going to be a really fun six months of writing about entrepreneurial freedom, consumer choice, and poverty alleviation. I'm really excited to tackle it. So yes, all things Young Voices. I'm still a PhD student, newly relocated from UCLA to UW-Madison. So you can find me a whole bunch of places. Follow on Twitter at Ajax the Griff and also Young Voices. Just stay away from Hector the Troll online. You'll be fine, Ooh. Amanda Griffiths. <laughs> Appreciate you greatly. See you soon. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.